associated with artistic production today. Mm-hmm. So as close to a debt-free model of an artistic practice as you could have in 2016. Yeah. So that means putting the uh, the funders, the, the, the patrons, in direct contact with the artists. You, you In a kind of Silicon Valley-style disruption, we've eliminated the necessity for a gallery. Essentially, Etsy is our gallery. Yeah. And Etsy takes... 3% of the artwork rather than 50%. <laughs> it's kind of a good deal. Yeah. The, uh, the model for uh, pricing of all of these works is just double the cost of materials. Uh, every piece that you buy along with each of the, um, the necessary parts comes with a certificate of authenticity that's signed and uh, kind of validates those materials as being uh, the artwork um, it's everything is unlimited edition mm-hmm. as, for the, as long as the window of this store being up. We've yeah. been shut down four times now. Ah, uh, from Etsy. Yeah, yeah, because of various <laughs> violations of terms of service. Because uh, I mean, so many, so many different reasons. We have currently on the site is ninety five. I think one of them expired, like ninety six pieces. We were up to about one hundred and four, and then various ones get flagged and taken down. Um, but I mean. Having launched the store on December seventeenth, twenty fifteen, and it's now by the first or second day of, of June, within that like what is it like a, a just over a five month span, yeah. we've been able to create say roughly a hundred artworks. Um, that's basically a, like a piece every weekday, almost like Monday through Friday, as if you were in the studio making an art object. Yeah. So without all of the other kind of overhead associated with artistic production, we're able to work at a very athletic pace that is uh, really unmatchable, even by a studio that has an entire team of assistants mm-hmm. making artworks. So how, how many artworks have you sold? The beautiful thing about Etsy is that the, not only is that the pricing completely transparent, but all of the sales are shown on the website in ah. chronological order. So we've made 46 sales uh, as of today. Okay, cool. And maybe we can talk a bit about one of your favorites, artworks. Um, well, the not the, not the highest seller, because the price point for this yeah. was only a dollar, but the most frequent seller was this uh, piece called the Nada Spiders for Change Fund. Donate $1 to anonymous anonymously release six wolf spiders in the fair and a chance to donate 100 to cancer research. Uh, so this was um, a, a piece that coincided with the Freeze and Nada art fairs in New York. And we released this image, which is a, a spider calling in a Nada admission ticket. This was the first year that Nada charged admission to the fair. And it was uh, yeah. kind of, you know, you know, uh, Famous and esteemed for being the free alternative that students could go to, and you know people who are not collectors themselves. So, <laughs> for this piece, uh, we had a covert operative stationed in the fair who was equipped with um, vials of live wolf spiders from a <laughs> biological supply company, and every time we would receive a one dollar donation through this Etsy store, <laughs> the uh, our agent inside the fair would release six wolf spiders uh, while browsing the fair. <laughs> we, we asked people to then document through photo or video uh, if they came across these spiders and send it to the store. 
on which we would validate if it is in fact like an ultraviolet production house wolf spider, and then we would donate a hundred dollars to cancer research. Okay. So we, we very nearly over the you know few days that that was happening, nearly raised one hundred fifty thousand dollars for cancer. Ah, great. So you didn't keep it yourself as an artist. It was really for charity. We nearly raised one hundred fifty thousand dollars for yeah. cancer. Okay. <laughs> And maybe another, is there another project that you would like to uh, talk about? Um, yeah, so I mean, we've got, we've got a number of concerns uh, that kind of like all uh, coalesce or intersect somewhere in this project. Um, Because so this one, in that case, the, um, the buyer doesn't really have to like create the artwork itself. No, no, that one is... Um, more about its this kind of dichotomy between the image uh, online and, and the artwork as it exists as an object or a performance or, or some piece in the physical yeah. world, and this inability to verify that connection. Um, but, but one of the one of the kind of things that we, we aim to uh, create in the story is, is almost like a, a tag cloud mm -hmm. of, of uh, different um, interests and, and kind of unconventional intersections of culture uh, in kind of an, a model of old media um, where you would have only a certain number of channels or only a certain amount of paid real estate in the magazine uh, content production seemed to steer towards hitting the largest demographic possible mm -hmm. right but after the advent of networked culture uh, with the kind of almost unlimited ability of the internet to store and, and display information Um, we, we see something like a long tail or a short tail and a long tail that um, there's it kind of uh, culture becomes increasingly fragmented and nicheified and, and splintered. So mm -hmm. um, kind of moving in, in while producing a work, you can kind of attach one object to another, to another, to another, and become increasingly specified in the production. So the piece that kind of best uh, embodies that idea is this uh, title. Meat smoker or organic post-death pet cremation machine, parentheses, natural honor remembrance, and thermoelectric phone charger from meat heat. So this piece is a, a trope on Pinterest, which is one of the like kind of main reference points for this project, that they provide many of the tutorials that we send out as, that becomes a list of instructions for assembling the works. So this is a, a large terracotta pot uh, with a barbecue grill kind of dropped in the center. Uh, it's on top of three bricks with coals at the bottom, um, and it's it's something used as like kind of a makeshift barbecue to grill outside, uh, where you can kind of like roast a, a chicken and uh, materials that you already have around your house. Um, so realizing that if you're using this to smoke meat, you could probably just as easily use it to carry out a kind of similar function, taking this to its illogical end of cremating your pet, which is approximately the same size as the uh, chicken you're eating. Um, but that seemed like there was a, a lot of heat and fuel going to waste, which would uh, kind of violate the parameters of ethical consumerism, because we want to have a, the lowest carbon footprint that we can. So we attached a thermoelectric charger to the meat smoker uh, that converts the portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that is heat into usable electricity. And so this then becomes a way to charge your phone. Yeah. And I think there's a nice little kind of loop here where 
uh, as you're cremating your pet and then you, you look at photos of them afterwards on your phone, as long as the phone is charged, the pet is in some way alive on your phone. Yeah. Right? But so you've gone through like kind of four different functions that's yeah. all contained within one object mm-hmm. and all of those are opportunities to uh, not only like make a reference and draw traffic to it but they start to become mutually exclusive I like to describe it as kind of like a material genius who fundamentally doesn't understand the, the ethical concerns implicated it's like uh, <laughs> It, it's it's in some ways uh, I mean callous and kind of like there's a implicate it's like why would you cremate your pet on the same device that you're using to cook your food uh, that's uh, deeply unethical but uh, at, at the same time it seems unethical to waste yeah the uh, the, the fuel the expend the ener- energy um, there's this kind of unusual intersection uh, the kind of like two main themes that we pull from on. Pinterest, which is the ethical consumer and mm-hmm. the survivalist. Yeah. Right. So the ethical consumer is kind of the um, the locavore, the farm to table character, the person that brings their tote bag with them to Whole Foods to save on you know throwing plastic bags into a landfill, uh, and then the survivalist is like the doomsday prepper. The um, they they are somehow convinced that either through uh, like a societal collapse or ecological disaster that we will be off-grid, left to fend for ourselves in complete anarchy. Um, so that they, they tend to, oddly enough, arrive at similar solutions to these problems where the ethical consumer wants to be aware of every stage of production in, in the supply chain and, and the production of, of the uh, objects and materials that they consume because uh, they want to lessen the opportunities for exploitation, right? Um, and kind of the quickest way to make that, that happen is to actually do it yourself. And then you're aware of all of the kind of uh, stages of production. So um, both these ethical consumers and these uh, preppers have things like rooftop gardens and rainwater. Uh, it's kind of like they're, they're coming from very different... Uh, philosophies they're, they're competing views of the future one is quite utopian that through our consumption we can affect positive change mm-hmm. in the world and the other is no matter what we do the world is imminently going to collapse and so we need to be prepared for it but they they just end up making all the things themselves and so I think you can kind of use one to elucidate the hypocrisies mm-hmm. of the other and so has the, the meat smoker has it been bought already? Yeah, yeah, it has. <laughs> How many times? Um, I think that one has only sold once. Um, it seems like we started after making a few sales. We were curious about how people would assemble these things, yeah. right? Because um, kind of with the like the emotive like seventies conceptualism of the dematerialization of the art objects, mm-hmm. right? It's the certificate of authenticity that becomes like the provenance for these materials in the same way if you're going to stack up 10 bricks how do you know that those 10 bricks constitute the artwork mm-hmm. it's, it's through the, the provenance right um, so realizing that maybe people were not assembling these things we uh, started to we put a piece on the store that was just uh, shelving units for the Amazon Prime boxes. 
So you could purchase the work and send it directly to storage and have the certificate of authenticity. And we like to call this mint condition, unboxed, uh, ultraviolet production. <laughs> that if you don't, if you don't fabricate it, it's, it's still in mint condition and retains all of that value. Yeah. And it's only, only $20. Yeah, it's not bad at all. No. no. So it's, it's quite a cheap work card. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's funny though in that like, uh, this is maybe like a, a post-internet question. If you, you buy something based on its image that you mm. haven't seen yet, mm. and then what you end up with is these boxes, and they kind of they just live in storage, which is I mean kind of similar to how a lot of artworks function. Yeah, they, they just live in a storage unit. Yeah. So if I would buy, I get like uh, with a cha- with a meat smoker, I get this pot and then the barbecue, and right. I get this phone charger, and mm-hmm. that's it. Like maybe three packages, but some of them are really, I think, <laughs> hard to believe that they can be delivered at your door. Yeah. Like yeah. for instance, there's like this, uh, the one the sea uh, on the sea, the floating office kind of thing. Uh, uh the this one. Yeah. Yeah. Or is this a joke? No, no, this is, I mean, yeah, you can, you can, you buy, can buy it. You can buy it, so I can buy a floating. I mean, this is actually, the, the photo, it's a, a gallery on top of uh, dock blocks, yeah. which are, like, that they connect together to make, a, like, a yeah. floating platform. Um, it's the, the seasteading gallery owner, floating pavilion for sinking biennial cities. Uh, kind of, like, <laughs> somehow, like, every cultural hub is... Uh, like in New York, Los Angeles, Mexico City, um, Venice, like they, they're all sinking at the at the same time, which is like this kind of weird, like the engine of finance that still moves that moves the art world is also kind of that which is like contributing to um, ecological disaster. Yeah, uh, and and the like inflated prices of the art market are in, in some way uh, a product of of that market. Um, so we're like conflating the two of it, but this is actually this photo is a gallery that I built from a project in 2013 called yeah. Depression Artifacts. So yeah. if you purchase this, you get the, uh, what is it, like 16 by 12 uh, dock block units mm-hmm. that you can snap together. And then you're going to get, uh, I, I think, like eight pieces of sheetrock, the lumber, the fluorescent lights. So, I mean, you actually, you have to build the gallery. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't arrive pre-assembled, but... Uh, and you also get the, the works of art that are in there? You don't you don't get the works of art that are in there, no, unfortunately. Those would uh, inflate the price much more than 50 Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, but you can have, um, a, like, a floating gallery. Yeah, yeah. That's it's awesome. It's kind of anticipating that the rising sea level is going to leave all these cities in ruin. Mm-hmm. Um, your gallery will rise with the sea level so the artworks are protected like, like an arc of some sort. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a, kind of the, the opposite idea of that is in these cities that are uh, on like areas where the rising sea level will soon have them flooded. During Hurricane Sandy in New York, Chelsea, which is the main like kind of gallery area, um, or, or was at the time, uh, flooded and a lot of galleries lost their like, you know, not just like their top floor their water, but the basements, um, you know, artworks were destroyed from years ago. But what's kind of funny about that is that all of the artworks in storage are actually just 
the pieces from over the years that hadn't sold at the shows. <laughs> so the galleries were able to, many of them, not all of them, many of them able to recoup the full retail value of the artwork through the insurance policy. So we, uh, we proposed another gallery, which is the insurance claim funded gallery owner, build a coastal gallery below sea level to encourage flooding where you put works that haven't sold or were intentionally made not okay. to sell. And then you, you kind of, you borrow, you carve out like a foundation, but make the gallery in the, the basement floor. So for this, you're going to get, you know, like 200 cinder blocks, sheetrock, uh, enough to like kind of build this below ground gallery. And really you only need one wall to like hang your artwork. Yeah. And so you can get rid of all the artworks you don't want to have anymore and, they, and get a refund. Yeah. So, so while it's flooding, that, that's what funds the, uh, the business. So this is quite of a <laughs> good business model for galleries. Yeah. And kind of in like in a similar, uh, vein as the meat smoker, they're like almost like self-sustaining, uh, economies or mm-hmm. ecologies like, um, that you could build one gallery, recoup the insurance costs of the artwork that didn't sell, and then build another below sea level gallery and then continue to scale up. Uh, but like part of what allows us to work like this, or even propose ideas like this, is not having to purchase all the materials beforehand, yeah. uh, hoping that they might sell in the future. Like yeah. It seems that the artist is always in the most precarious position mm-hmm. where the gallery has you know, from their, their brick-and-mortar space, you know, maybe 10 shows a year uh, where they have opportunities to sell, and then, uh, of course, art the art fair circuit. But if you're an artist, you have, like, one to two, maybe three, if you're very lucky, chances to sell. Mm-hmm. And if you if you make a mistake along the way, you know, if your, your first show doesn't sell, then you don't really get a second show where you got to figure out a way to, to make that. Yeah. Uh, so... We kind of see that uh, become manifest in, um, especially in, in the case of young artists that are then kind of afraid or really unable to take a risk and make a new body of work mm-hmm. because the market has validated a certain thing from them, so they can't stray too far from it because otherwise they, they undercut their own market. Yeah. Uh, but that all kind of like um, seems to advocate a model of cultural production that is based in, in debt slavery. Yeah. Um, so how would you describe um, your role as an artist in this project? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it, it's almost the same as if you were to have a team of assistants carry out the fabrication of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or you have a fabricator that kind of makes technical decisions and yeah. how the thing is assembled. Uh, we do equip buyers with pretty um, in-depth uh, uh, tutorials or, or assembly guidelines. Um, but it's it's also, I think that you can just, you can kind of flip it the opposite direction and say, like, each ultraviolet production house piece is unique. It, it's bespoke in the way that that specific person assembles it. And with this, like, the long tail of culture, our works become, in, you know, increasingly customized and specific to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't, it wouldn't feel like a failure of the project if someone assembled it in a different way than we had intended, yeah. you know. But so, is there one other project to uh, discuss? Because I, I see quite a lot of fun uh, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so there, there's a lot of humor in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think when you make artwork for the gallery, or when you make artwork for essentially the newsfeed, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's there's different kind of pressures that play on it, and different ways to. Um, You know, grab someone's attention. Yeah. Then an attention economy. You're, you're you're scrolling. You're scrolling. You're you're consuming so much content. What actually what stops someone and, and you know has them look at a piece? Yeah. Um. I think maybe maybe this one is a great example. Uh. But kind of in the in the same way that an image has viral potential and is shareable, mm -hmm. right? It's a mimetic format. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also A, another mimetic format, which is the kind of the story or, or the gossip of the art world, right? And so that's like um, something that's uh, similar to the not aspires for change. While people are going through an art fair, they're scrolling on their phone, they're looking at all this stuff. Uh, they're also going around to, like booth to booth and kind of talking with people. What have you seen? What's happening this week? Uh, and, and this is kind of the, like the, the hottest thing on the tip of everyone's tongues. Like, oh, do, do you think it's real? Are they actually releasing spiders? Have you seen one? Uh, and that's it. So there are some that are like rather simple images, but come with a piece of short fiction mm -hmm. almost. Like they come yeah. with story attached that, yeah. that has content that is like relevant and, and people people want to share it. So this was one that like I, I just come up with it on like I think it was Monday night. We went into the we were doing the residency in Times Square that just ended recently. Uh, came in Tuesday morning, made the thing, and by Tuesday afternoon it was already had been swept into like the. Um, like tech news funnels and has become like the highest viewed piece on, on the store as a whole. Uh, so this is an Airbnb housing solution. Remain on your Lower East Side apartments, fire escape, in a hanging tent while guests pay off your month's rent. Um, <laughs> so this is a kind of like, again, something found through yeah. Pinterest, which is a hanging tent for uh, rock climbers yeah. who have to learn like scaling. Yeah, they have, they have to have somewhere to sleep overnight. Um, but there's this strange, like the circular... Uh, you know, um, ecosystem in the, the Lurie side where um, artists who are, are trying to meet their rent uh, have to Airbnb their apartment for like a week out of the month or something like this. Uh, and so while doing that, they stay on their friend's couch and then their friend also has to Airbnb their apartment and they stay on the, the, the first person's couch, right? So they're constantly like swapping back and forth through this whole circuit. Uh, but part of what happens with the sharing economy is not just that It allows the kind of, you know, individual prosumer to, to meet their overhead, but it, it slowly rises up the rent of the entire neighborhood yeah. at a time because yeah. it becomes a, like, more, you know, comfortable for tourists because there are places to stay uh, and also increases the value of the real estate because people are actually able to pay higher prices for it. Uh, and eventually everyone either gets, like, evicted from their homes and they're turned into illegal Airbnb hotels or there's, like, this cliff that we approach where, To remain, to sustain, like, your apartment, you're going to have to spend more time out of it, Airbnb in place, than you yes. get to spend in it. But it, it's a really kind of simple image, but it's, it's a story that uh, I think really uh, people want to share yeah. from it. Yeah. So, I've read in the note that Brad uh, has sent me about um, this project that with post-internet... Um, the uh, native capacity of social media and image sharing was like explored and um, this is a uh, project is kind of an extension of all these 
other native capacities. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, because it's uh, not only about the image, but it's also about buying, about installing the output, mm-hmm. all kind mm-hmm. of uh, things. Yeah. So, can you explain this a bit more? What are you hoping to achieve with this? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think kind of on the um, the point that you had mentioned before of like, you know, has, has like post-internet as like, you know, art, air quote, like art term, like has that ended? Um, I, I consider post-internet to be something like a, uh, we like to draw this analogy of um, a print magazine with mm-hmm. an active blog presence mm-hmm. in that the, the internet as a, a form of uh, distribution of disseminating images uh, functions quite well for advertising, but they're still trying to sell you an object in a gallery, yeah. a, a brick and mortar gallery, a physical object. And it seems like that's a rather simplistic view of how this whole thing works, because mm-hmm. the internet does a lot more than disseminate images, right? So this, we're not just, we're using that uh, distribution apparatus, but we've also, like, playing to these native advantages of the internet. Why would you build the object beforehand if you can just have it shipped from a place that is like an Amazon warehouse that's maybe uh, you know 50 miles from someone's house rather than shipping it from New York to LA or overseas uh, and then have it assembled on site that there's um, a number of ways to to, to play to these advantages that um, an idea of post internet as like an image Object, uh, it, it's, it's it's too simple. That's been thoroughly explored, mm-hmm. you know. And the, and this work is, is most definitely um, in a lineage of that thought, but is I think the inevitable conclusion that yeah. <laughs> we're going to uh, uh, artists are eventually going to arrive at, and that like doing this show in London that I'm like leaving for in you know it happens in less than a week. All of the works are produced over there. All the materials are sourced over there. And they're all things that I've either sent files through the internet mm-hmm. or I've purchased it on the internet and had it sent to the gallery. Yeah. So it's kind of the same process, but in a different way. Essentially, yeah. And we're, we're developing this into a... Um, we're actually going to be giving a talk at mm-hmm. the gallery in London. Ah, um, about this project Yeah, as well? yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of similar to like the, the, the walkthrough that we're doing here, but we're going to make like a slideshow and kind of... Um, yeah, like, like pace out the presentation, and we're doing a lecture at Aperture in July. Uh, but eventually, I think this will become a long-form essay to be released as a PDF. Okay. Because uh, I think this idea of the, the native advantages of the internet, mm-hmm. what we're looking at here through Ultraviolet Production House is only the most rudimentary, like, primitive, like, preliminary version of what uh, artistic practice will, will become in the yeah. future. Uh, that where 3D printing now is like you know cost prohibitive and not not yet ubiquitous enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you can kind of produce any material on site, we're already seeing this happen efficiently in like the, the field of design um, for for like uh, household objects, for like like a, a vase or um, you know a bowl. Like it, the rendering software mm-hmm. is the same software that is sent to the CNC machine or the 3D printer. So that uh, software which envisions and, and renders the, the image that is disseminated mm-hmm. to garner the cultural capital, to raise the funding, to produce the thing, is literally the same vector file, the same indexical data that is sent to the, the tools for production. Yeah. So what 
do you, how do you think that the art will, will look like in, in the future? Uh, I think it becomes increasingly decentralized. Mm -hmm. I, there's like there's waves and like in the way that, like there there are peaks and valleys and mm -hmm. these things, um, and they kind of they move at different motions. So sometimes two waves will join together and create a very high peak where a number of people are agreeing on things, and then sometimes there'll be a giant space where everyone is disagreeing on things. I think kind of right now we're if post-internet was the kind of like last generation straddling that analog digital divide where there was a big kind of unanimous like consensus of like, oh, this is a new thing that we should mm -hmm. look into is now there seems to be tremendous disagreement mm -hmm. even amongst those artists that all like were swept up in that, um, that first wave. Uh, but it seems that there's increasingly not a center to it and there are just various overlapping pockets. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of work that is more... Um, either transmittable and you know able to be produced on site through various printing processes uh, or, or things like ultraviolet where you're you're purchasing materials and then you assemble it in the, the gallery yeah um, you know Brad and I are both also gallery artists and we make as you can see around the studio like mm -hmm. uh, physical objects that hang on walls that go into brick and mortar galleries but uh, I think think or, or I kind of suspect that we will move increasingly towards a post-studio practice yeah. in the future. So it's, more flexible? Yeah, more like location independent yeah. where, where we can be emailing during the week and then would kind of meet up on the weekends to like review all of the ideas that we were talking about. But you know, you could be an artist working from <laughs> this is you know, in a very again like lower overhead but precarious terms of employment uh, you can be working from Starbucks or working from your apartment you, you wouldn't necessarily need uh, the physical overhead of yeah. the studio it just seems like there there's so much uh, kind of risk and, and such a low chance to succeed as an artist yeah. that people have to become increasingly uh, creative and like cunning in, the, in their way to produce work mm -hmm. um so I feel like there's a, a, a very reasonable chance that we'll, we'll see more work that just plays to these native advantages, yeah. if, if I had to take a guess. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I, I think there's a lot of people that don't know what they are looking at if they see these. They're quite confused still. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's a piece recently that really kind of um, just made it extremely clear this? like what this story is. Uh, and that was... The piece is titled A Bubble. Yes. Not The Bubble, just A Bubble. And it's for $100. <laughs> uh, the item details are just A Bubble. There's no, there's no explanation on it. But what you get is um, water, dish soap, corn syrup, and a little wand to blow the bubbles. Like, uh, it's quite obviously something that is impossible to ship and has to be made on site. Um, but it's still, it's like, it's transparent and it's volumetric. It's like, it's kind of close enough to an object that it, it, it makes all of these ideas very uh, clear. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, the entire store is like, in the scope of any practice like this, every piece is like just one part in a constellation of concerns, right? So it's like a piece like that can demonstrate uh, kind of a what is the overall concept or mode of production for this store, mm -hmm. right? But that's, um, you know, it, it only fulfills, like, one of the roles of, yeah. of uh, 
also, I, I would like a bubble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing is when we started this though, it's like some of the materials are so like it's so obvious what goes into this mm-hmm. um, that we're almost like asking you to bypass our authorship. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you pay double for the materials if you could just get all? If you really like the object, you don't necessarily need the COA. Yeah. So you could buy the the bricks, the terracotta pot, the yeah. grill, the thermal electric chart, all of those things, and get it for half the price. Which yeah. Is, uh, I haven't seen anyone do that yet, but it, it would be kind of like fun if they did. I think we're we're skewing with the or we're we're, we're like messing around in, in the codes of how how the artwork is is evaluated, how it's assembled, like all of these things, right? And so yeah. we're, we're playing with um, the the way that the market works the yeah. way that funding and patronage for art works and we're kind of just seeing what happens with that like this is a live experiment mm-hmm. and then watching the way that people respond to it mm-hmm. the, the last thing to mention with um, kind of on this idea of the, the native um, advantages of the internet mm-hmm. um, we, we describe this thing as a, uh, a post lens photography mm-hmm. where there's still photographs there's still um uh, an indexical tie to to an object or material in the real world that's recorded through a lens, uh, but they didn't necessarily occur all at the same time. So a piece is composited from four different photos that are made by uh, different people at different times at different places with different materials, mm-hmm. but then all kind of seamlessly joined together to create um, a, a photographic likeness of this object we're mm-hmm. proposing. Yeah, um, and, and that's that's possible through the um, kind of conventions of product photography, yeah. where uh, essentially people are assembling the same studio of a white seamless with bounce cards and lighting things from the same angles. Uh, that that they're constructing the same studio in, in these various locations, and then we're just here like pulling individual pieces from that that uh, that stream and reassembling them, like uh, recoding them. Um, but there's there's various degrees of realism to these, uh, but a few like the uh, mobile solar powered tanning canopy, which allows you to like you can tan in a beach chair, but it's solar powered, so it's actually it's probably like casting a shadow on you by by being there. Um, but it, it allows us this this idea of a post lens photography or image compositing from product photos uh, through a prescribed way of seeing them often lends a high degree of realism to the pieces and that yeah. they can kind of circulate as an internet hoax. Um, and, and so this becomes fuel for the like um, kind of outrage blog. So this one piece that went really, really viral in the kind of first launch of the site called the Crust Couch, which is um, a, a restoration hardware couch that's covered in kind of crust punk patches of various like uh, you know, punk bands like Amoebics, Disrupt, Nausea, Doom, Wolf Brigade, Extreme Noise Terror, the, this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and then in a kind of like circular ecosystem of traffic, um, these various like punk and metal and like, like music uh, sites would pick this image up and like, you won't believe the way that punk culture is being commodified now. It's like, <laughs> would you spend $5,000 on this couch? And then someone actually wrote, it's like, just sew the patches on myself if I really wanted that. Um, uh, I mean, they're kind of like, they're intentionally burying the lead. There's like really, there's there's very uh, 
few ways that you can browse through the store and not realize that none of these things yet physically exist. Uh-huh. But they're kind of, uh, we're providing the fuel for them, and then we also get to pull from other ideas that they've become similarly like surprised or outraged about that becomes inspiration for new products. Yeah. So um, it's kind of it's, it's like a, a happy exchange there. But these um, the, the ability to operate with a degree of realism. Uh, for the final product is like one what I mean uh, allows you to sell an object that you're not in the same room with right that's the kind of like <laughs> the, the dumb Marxian take on like what photography does uh, but it, it also allows these things to circulate you know as and, and, and kind of have a, a degree of like uh, believability through them, which is kind of the first in, mm-hmm. I think. It's, it's the thing that arrests you in while you're scrolling through the news feed of like, wait, what is that? That looks extremely unusual. Maybe I should check it out. It's just as simple as that. Yeah. If you see this image of the plush couch, you definitely have this feeling. But you have to stitch on the, um, the things yourself, isn't it? Yeah, you do. It's, yeah. So we send you the patches and the needle and thread and like the, oh, like yeah. the whiteout paints and the, the spikes. And the couch as well. And the couch, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why it's so expensive because yeah. it's, it's double the couch. Yeah. Has it been sold already? No, this one was kind of the first piece that went viral and we got a cease and desist from RH Contemporary, which is a, uh, a gallery here mm-hmm. in New York. RH stands for Restoration Hardware, yeah. which you might be familiar from, mm-hmm. like, the, um, you know, interior products, furniture, and cabinets, and, and et cetera. Um, so someone at RH Contemporary noticed the couch, and then we... So we basically had to take another couch and drop all the patches onto it again, uh, but still maintain the same link, so that even the things that are hyperlinked using the old image that's hosted on various other blogs will now link to the new product, mm-hmm. even though it's a different image and yeah. potentially a different piece. Mm-hmm. So have there been galleries that were uh, buying or have shown interest in this? Um, yes, we are, we, there's a gallery in Chicago that bought a number of pieces. Um, there, there's one in New York, which is like just putting this, um, some stuff from the store in it. Um, but it, kind of really what happens is we like to tell curators and galleries and collectors that uh, kind of built into this project, mm-hmm. um, you don't necessarily need the permission of the artist no. or a studio to make the artist buy to get the work. Yeah. If you want to put it in your show, just buy it off the website, yeah. and that's, that's what it's there for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that includes all the shipping and all the tools you need to assemble it. Yeah. It, you know, no contracts. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think, like, you can kind of... Uh, like you can do whatever you want with your own property after that. We don't. We don't necessarily need to even have an involvement in the, the show. You just you, you use the work. Uh, so, really, the the kind of commercial galleries um, don't don't have much use for a project like this, right? And this project doesn't have much use for them. Mm-hmm. In that, if there's a piece that's available for sixty dollars in the store, and then you assemble it, and you put it into a gallery and you use your, your factoring to evaluate its, its worth, you know, by the square inch, literally, uh, it's going to come out to a very different number. So you're trying to sell something for $5,000 that you purchased off of an Etsy store for $60. The collectors who want the piece are just going to go straight to the Etsy store yeah. and buy it for much cheaper. Yeah. Right. That, um, so this is kind of, I think something that would be more 
it, like an institution would invest in this project. Yeah. You know, kind of like to kind of uh, to, to see how it becomes manifest. Yeah. But they wouldn't. Uh, it, it wouldn't necessarily need to be with a commercial gallery. Etsy is the gallery. Yeah. Cool. Is there anything you'd like to add, or maybe you have some future plans you'd like to talk about? Um. Well, I mean, we're giving both of the uh, these two lectures. Um, we're, we're releasing this as an essay. Um, we're kind of after the residency. We mm -hmm. just finished this residency work in progress at uh, Times Square we have a studio over in Times Square. Is that too believable? Amazing. Visit your dad. Yeah, that would have been. We, well, it just it just ended like <laughs> uh, unfortunately, but. Um, I think we're we've kind of hit the ground running with this project, and mm -hmm. I feel like it's off to a really strong start. And we're just going to continue doing more of this. And it, it, if you look at the kind of like chronological progression of this project, mm -hmm. uh, it's become increasingly more focused. And we were at a point where we got shut. Our story got shut down in the middle of that residency, but we were like every day having a piece go viral to some extent, yeah. uh, which has kind of what attracted so much attention and then Etsy took a second look at the store and they're like wait what is this thing uh, yeah but I think after like it, in uh, July we're going to double down and like produce like a, a <laughs> you know several months worth of content yeah. yeah there will be a lot of projects coming up cool thank you so much <laughs> yeah thank you really lovely projects <laughs> Thanks again, uh, Josh, for having me. And and if you happen to be in London one of these days, be sure to drop by Carol Fletcher before the 27th of August. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next time. In the meantime, you can follow me on SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter for updates. Thanks. Bye. This is the post